This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Times Redbox Politics Podcast, coming to you this week for the very last time from me, Patrick Maguire. Yes, Matt Chorley is back from his long week crossing the North Atlantic, battling Force 10 gales and adoring fans. He's back tomorrow, but in the meantime, I've got a fantastic podcast to bid you farewell with. I'm going to be asking, what if the Conservatives never went into coalition with the Liberal Democrats in 2010? But before that, we've got a really, really interesting discussion. We're talking the crisis in the Conservative Party and what on earth the government is going to do about those record high migration figures with two guys who know more about this than anybody in Westminster. So it's time for today's columnist panel. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, busy week in politics, and I've got a great political panel this morning, joined by Times columnist Ian Martin. Hi, Ian. Hi there. And John Stevens, political editor at the Daily Mirror. Hi, John. Hi, morning, Patrick. How's that for balance? Now, let's get straight into it. Speaking this morning, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, has said he's determined to bring immigration numbers down. I'm very clear that the levels of net migration are too high. They need to come down to more sustainable levels. It's encouraging that the Office for National Statistics last week did say that the numbers are already slowing, but we need to do more. I've already taken action to tighten the number of dependents that students can bring when they come and study here. We'd seen a very sharp rise in those numbers. And that measure that I took represents the single biggest measure to bring down legal migration that anyone's ever taken. But of course, as we need to do more, we'll look at that and where their abuses of the system, we will of course act on that because the levels do need to come down. They are too high. Well, James Cleverley will speak to Parliament at 2.30 this afternoon to update MPs on the government's plans. Last week was a mixed one for the new Home Secretary, the low point, of course, when he was alleged to have levelled a foul-mouthed insult at the town of Stockton-on-Tees. Uh, Ian, pressure on Cleverley today, not least because Swella Bravman has popped up again. Yeah, there is a lot of uh, pressure on him. I mean, what's happening is that the immigration issue seems to be, I think I'm right in saying, rising up the list of voters' concerns. And the problem that Cleverly has and that the Prime Minister has is that the Conservative Party has pledged, I think I'm right in saying again, to reduce uh, immigration, I think at one point to tens of thousands mm. in terms of net migration, 
in every single manifesto or every single general election since 2010. You look at the scale of those numbers last week, and I know there are mitigating circumstances in certain respects, but it's it's such an enormous number that it should be absolutely terrifying for the Conservative Party. Do you agree, John? Yeah, and I think that James Cleverley didn't really make things better for himself last week when he did that interview in The Times, was it, on Saturday? Oh, in which he said he was sort of agnostic about redrawing for the European Convention on Human Rights and was sort of very lukewarm on the very principle of sending people to Rwanda. Yeah, and he did have a point in what he said. He said that on immigration, we've had too much talk and not enough action, which I think most people would agree with. But the problem he's facing is people think he's much softer within the party on immigration. And they also think that with the appointment of David Cameron, things like leaving the ECHR are now off the table. And so... Whilst he did have a sensible point in there somewhere, you've just kind of created all these problems for yourself with the backbenchers, with all those Tory MPs and the new Conservatives group who were already wary of James Cleverley, and now they're particularly wary of him. And I just think, not quite sure what he went into that interview thinking he was doing, rather than just, I mean, everyone loves the vanity of doing a big newspaper interview, but if you haven't got a particular message to sell, then it's probably not wise to do it. And how seriously, you know, John there mentioned the New Conservatives, Sola Bradman this morning released that sort of extensively trailed deal she struck with the Prime Minister on yeah. reducing migration. How seriously does the government need to take the threat from the Tory right here, Ian? I mean, I don't think the Tory right is as big as it thinks it is or as as is usually um, you know, is usually stated. I think there's a small group around Suella Bravman. There's a group beyond that that you might consider Tory right. I mean, where does David Davis fit into that? Mm. David Davis is... Um, absolutely determined that Britain doesn't leave the ECHR. I, I, you know, I think that's his very much still his position. It's more the uh, more the the threat they have off to the right beyond that, which is outside the Conservative Party, which is the the rise of reform, which I know we're going to talk about. And it's that it's that pressure that's being applied with MPs. And never forget with the Conservative Party. I suppose the same with any party, but a party as ruthless as the Conservative Party, they can read the polls it all starts to become about their own seat and about personal implications. And they can see this rising threat of reform. They can Mm. see what voters are saying about immigration. And you just get this sort of incoherent demand for something to be done. I think think it's also a risk to the left as well, though, because... We know that the Tories are going to run election kind of scaremongering about Labour, saying if you let Labour in, then we're going to have uncontrolled immigration, we're going to have the economy go to pot, etc., etc. It's difficult to make that argument if you've got the numbers going up and up and up on your watch. And I think that that is really difficult for the government. And, yeah, people are worried about reform. I know we are going to come on and talk about reform. But it's easy for Labour to bang that drum and say... Bloke and prejudice, you promised at the manifesto you were going to do this, you didn't. You promised this on tax, you didn't. And as much as the Tory party like to paint Keir Starmer as a flip-flopper, I think there is an argument that the Labour Party can prosecute there on broken promises. I mean, the irony is that neither of the main parties uh, and you know, even the smaller parties, no one really wants to have an honest conversation, a frank conversation about this migration question. We're in the foothills of what's coming in terms of mass global migration. 
the uh, you know the, the effects of changes in the economy, people wanting to move for economic reasons, and then potentially even changes to the climate. So all of that is going to unfold over the next 20, 30 years. You need essentially cooperation between the French, the Germans, the Swedes, the Brits, um, in or out of the EU. Some of these conventions and treaties are going to have to be redrawn. It's going to be really difficult, sort of 10-year, 20-year effort. And you can already see the beginnings of this in mm. European politics. That's where it's headed. But instead, if the public has been sold a series of very simplistic um, you know, slogans about about migration. You, see, you, hear, you hear people say on on you know on phone-ins. Well, um, you know, just just get the navy to stop the boats. You say, well, how practically would that work? I mean, mm. in the busiest shipping lane in the world, well, how could they then be returned to France? So it's going to be, I think, for the for whoever is the next government is going to have a really difficult task to explain to people that this is um, not an insoluble problem, but a really difficult generational problem to which. Britain can't solve it on its own. Uh, and not least because, you know, last week when we had the net migration figures, those record high net migration figures, had Tory MPs on this station and indeed on, on Twitter and everywhere saying, well, look, what the Prime Minister needs now is immediate and drastic and radical action. When actually, if you look at the figures, so many of them were health and social care visas. So the answer yeah. is, OK, either you tolerate this level of migration or we have to have an equally difficult conversation about adult skills provision wages in this country, which are big, knotty, longer-term questions that no government is going to... You know, there are, no, there are no votes in talking about adult skills policy or, indeed, you know, at a time of high inflation, nobody wants to talk about let's hike wages for the low pay because that runs it cuts against the grain of everything else. Also leads you back into a conversation about welfare to work, which is about to come back into fashion. Whoever is in power is going to head back in the direction of sort of Clinton... Major Blair, those those reforms to encourage people back into work for its own for its own sake, which obviously there's an enormous productivity benefit and a saving to the taxpayer. That is where politics is headed, and you can see Britain has an increasing problem, a problem that was quite good at dealing with in 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 the 1990s. You have to go back to that. The other thing in the figures is there's Hong Kong in there, and there's Ukraine. Mm. As well, they're both factors I'm, I'm spread over different spread over different years, but they are a factor, and they're both a positive story. People from Hong Kong coming here to bring their expertise and their, their drive and ambition. People from Ukraine, equally as ambitious, but sheltering from a war in in Europe. But it did puzzle me that there wasn't then much of an attempt by the government to explain that. Cleverly would say, presumably he said it in his interview, but. Mm. Um, uh, if he did, I missed it. And in, in the, with that in mind, John, do you think it's wise for the Labour Party, or do you understand why, unusually for Keir Starmer's Labour Party, Darren Jones, the Shadow Cabinet Minister, was on the media round yesterday and was prepared to say, look, we'll get it down to 200,000 a year. I was surprised to hear him say that, not because necessarily I don't think the Labour Party do want to do that, but we've seen over the last few years, that every time a target has been set, then that is just a millstone round a politician's neck. I think when David Cameron first set the 100,000, tens of thousands target, I mean, you're no better than me remembering stuff in the near distant past. But wasn't that just something, that was an off-the-cuff remark that he made that then became this big target. Totemic, and sort of, yeah. This big thing of that was... People talked about, still talk about now, people remember the 100,000 target that I felt yesterday that that was a 
aim or a target being made by mistake rather than something that was intentional. Well, talking about the politics is more broadly, Ian, you wrote last week uh, about the threat uh, from Reform UK to the Tories. Lee Anderson alleged yesterday that he was offered a large sum of money to join uh, Nigel Farage and Richard Tice's party. Uh, the deputy chair of Reform, Ben Habib, spoke to Times Radio a little bit earlier. Well, you'd have to ask Lee Anderson what he's referring to. Of course, there is Reclaim and there is Reform. And I think you might recall Reclaim actually putting out a general announcement, I think it was two years ago, quite a long time ago, um, saying all, all Conservative Party MPs welcome to join them. But you've been there since March. Have you since March talked to Lee Anderson about joining your party? No, I haven't had any discussions with Lee Anderson since March. And earlier I also spoke to John Curtis, Professor Sir John Curtis indeed, about how Nigel Farage's return to the leadership reform could be a potential game-changer. Probably if I were trying to think of the, the, the worst thing that could po- possibly happen for Tory MPs uh, in the next six months, it probably is that Nigel Farage would return as the leader of the Brexit party. Uh, that said, we do need to remember that in the end, it was Nigel Farage's decision uh, early on in the 2019 general election to essentially put up the white flag to the Conservatives by saying that his party would not stand in constituencies the Conservatives were defending. That pretty much in the end gave the election to Boris Johnson mm. and support for the Brexit party uh, fell away. Ian, how worried should the Tories be? Extremely worried. And my old friend John Curtis there is, of course, right that in 2019, Farage effectively backed down or there wasn't a formal deal, Mm. but he stood aside. The thing that's different this time and that is terrifying uh, quite a few Tory MPs, not all of them, those in the safer seats don't really necessarily need need to worry, is that Farage this time, he doesn't want a deal. You know, last time, the Brexit party and the Tory party sort of wanted the same thing, which was to get Brexit done. This time... Farage and Richard Tice and the donors to reform want to destroy the Conservative Party. There is nothing that they can be offered which will make them stand aside. Now, of course, it may disintegrate when he returns from the jungle. They they may start fighting amongst themselves. They might not be able to organise. But if they can get organised, I've got that sort of feeling I had about Farage and what he's up to in about 2012 and in about 2018-19. And I've it looks to me as though he's getting ready for another of his operations and it'll be aimed very straightforwardly at the immigration question that the Tories have failed on this and that there'll be a bit of let you down on Brexit as well and didn't realise the benefits of of Brexit but that'll be a lesser question. The main thing will be immigration and it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to win many seats. I mean, they really want to win a seat but if they get to 10% 10 of the vote in the general election, they're starting to poll that. But if they get even slightly higher than that, what it does is it turns a potential defeat um, with Labour winning into an absolute rout. Like an extinction event for the Conservative Party. That's, yeah. that's the concern. There are Tories who disagree. I mean, Tory MP phoned me at the weekend and said, interesting, uh, he's in a relatively safe seat, though what does that mean at the moment? But he he said, well, it's, it's probably OK because that party, the reform will win those votes in seats. The Tories are going to lose already in, in you know, in the red wall. But is that really true? So take someone like Kent, mm. which is really interesting. It's sort of red wallish, but it's obviously in the south of England. If you start to get reform standing in seats where the Tories have majorities, they're going to be under pressure anyway from Labour. You just need to take three, four, five thousand votes 
as has happened in by-elections, and that's the difference between being a Labour MP and being a being um, being a Tory MP. To which you you point that out to reform, they actively they, they don't care that this that is their purpose, which I think a lot of which is really Tories striking. I, I, I've had to. this conversation with with Nigel Farage, sort of you know. Is it, I asked if he, you know, are you worried about being the midwife for a Labour government? And he, his blind is essentially, well, what's the difference? It's you know, we've had thirty years of the Uniparty, as uh, as he would put it. John, this must be great news for the Labour Party if Ian's uh, anywhere near right. Also, I think that things could be much more dangerous for the Tories on the reform side than they are now. I think that changing the name from the Brexit Party to the Reform Party was probably a mistake. People knew what the Brexit Party was. And clearly replacing Nigel Farage with Richard Tice, we know the reasons why that happened, because Nigel Farage wants to have a TV career rather than necessarily be always on the front line of politics. Richard Tice isn't Nigel Farage. He's nowhere near as identifiable. He's nowhere near as charismatic. And I think that if you did see Nigel Farage come back from the jungle and decide, oh, actually, I would like another crack at frontline politics, then I think that would be much more dangerous for the Tories and quite helpful for the Labour Party. Across the UK, on DAB, online and on your smart speaker, this is Times Radio. Now, does Rishi Sunak know how to use a hammer? That's the question posed by a viral clip spreading on social media over the weekend in which the Prime Minister was seen using the tool sideways. It was shared by the Labour Party, drew the comparison between the PM and Keir Starmer, whose father, I can exclusively reveal, was a toolmaker, and it remains on its official Twitter feed. But, as the full ship, uh, clip shows, Sunak was instructed to use the hammer that way. Sideways. Yeah, yeah. about right. Good. No, no, no. Oh, no. More. Oh, more. Yeah. Like, really? <laughs> yeah. Now, come on, <laughs> So, Ian, very funny, but misinformation from the Labour Party in spreading it, or fair yeah. game in the uh, rich tradition of the Ed Miliband bacon sandwich? Well, it just it did make me realise we've got 11 months left of this stuff <laughs> until polling day. It's going, to be a, it's going to be a long way. Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it, it was fairly... Um, you know, Conducted in a fairly amusing spirit, wasn't it, between the, the social media teams of the Tory party and the Labour party. Um, I mean, I, I have to say, the moment I saw the clip, the shortened version as well, I was taken back to school days and woodwork and all of that sort of stuff. And I knew instantly that he was right. Because that is, if you've ever been forced to study these things, that, <laughs> that, that is somehow, somehow, sometimes the best way to deal with a really... Um, difficult uh, nail with the mm. sort of rather than the head of the hammer he said getting really technical here you go side <laughs> really on really technical but then and then usually a bit more gently than he than he did it but so i thought he was um I thought it was quite revealing that lots of, I don't want to say lots of metropolitan London, no, I was London say, people. Well, there was a bit the, of that. A lot of people who hadn't done woodwork. The Labour Party isn't run by horny-handed sons of toil. <laughs> Shock horror. <laughs> what do you think, John? I mean, because the ethical question people are now raising is, is it, you know, even if it's funny and even if it's that classic, well, you know, it looks, it sounds right. The, you know, the Prime Minister probably doesn't know how to use a hammer, married to a billionaire, et cetera, et cetera. But is, you know, even if it's, amusing or entertaining and conducted, as Ian says, in a sort of light-hearted spirit, can can you justify it? I mean, the allegation made in the tweet was that he couldn't use a hammer. You look at the video, whether the hammer was the right way up or sideways, it didn't appear like he could use a hammer. He wasn't doing a very good job at getting the thing in. That jeweller who was in the background of the video was saying, come on, 
I think that that is an absolutely fine allegation to make. And it's actually quite interesting. If you now go back on that tweet on the Labour Party Twitter page or X page, it is still there. But it's now one of those ones that has that reason, a community, community note. note at the bottom saying, well, if you look at the full clip, he was actually instructed to do it that way. I mean, my takeaway is I just find those any video or picture or clip of Rishi Sunak trying to be a normal person with that rictus grin when he was going through Wagamama with that plate with his name, Rishi, on the name badge. I just think it makes me feel sick. It's just absolutely, uh, it's just so patronising. And that grin of someone who's never done a proper day's work. You just think, <gasps> oh, let's harsh. dress up as a normal, let's play you dress You try being Chancellor and Prime Minister, John. And he was a waiter. You know, he's a waiter. Oh, he was, was in a curry house in Southampton. Yeah. Yes, he, he was. was yeah. Yeah. Oh, he was a waiter. I, th- I think the political problem for them is that it cuts across his his main message is supposed to be that that he's serious, right? Mm. And there's a lot to be serious about um, geopolitically, internationally. And then if you keep on doing, I'd say, silly visits and sort of little social media memes, which are then exploited by the opposition. It, contradict, it contradicts that core message, which he did when he did a really serious shift on net zero and then damaged it or undermined it by producing seven policies that Labour, the Labour Party weren't really introducing and saying that he'd stopped it. So I would, if I was in his shoes, just emphasise the seriousness. That was John Stevens and Ian Martin. Remember, you can read Ian in The Times every week. Just head to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Box to get yourself a subscription. And right now, there's a fantastic introductory offer on. It's only a pound for four months. That is ridiculous value. So don't miss out. It's only on for another few days. Up next, what if... Liberal Democrats had never accepted David Cameron's big, bold, open and comprehensive offer to form a coalition government. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. Yes, this is What If, where we explore the political parallel universes we could have enjoyed or suffered had things gone just a little differently. Today we ask, what if this had turned out differently? 
whichever party gets the most votes and the most seats, if not an absolute majority, has the first right to seek to govern either on its own or by reaching out to other parties. Nick and I wanted to put aside party differences and work together in the national interest. Both our parties have given their full backing to our coalition agreement. This is a new government and it's a new kind of government. Yes, we're asking what if the Liberal Democrats hadn't gone into coalition with the Conservatives in 2010? And to ponder this one, I'm joined by Baroness Featherston, Lynn Featherston, who is part of the five-person team negotiating for the Lib Dems. Hi, Lynn. Hello. Hello. And Lord Adonis, Andrew Adonis, who is in Gordon Brown's negotiating team for Labour. Hi, Andrew. Morning. Uh, Lynn, you heard Nick Clegg at the start there outlining his position, what he saw as his negotiating mandate, his approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first principle that he would negotiate first with the with the politician, with the party leader who'd won the most seats. In hindsight, was that in hindsight was that correct? I think it. W- I think it was. I think you have to start with the. Per- the, the party that has the most votes um, because the country has indicated they're the preferred party and it wasn't about what preferred party we or I might have wanted, it was about what the country had told us. Uh, Andrew, given what Nick Clegg said, given what Lynn's just said, were you on a hiding to nothing from the very beginning? Uh, yes, I think we were. I don't think Nick Clegg ever had any intention of doing anything other than going in with the Conservatives. I don't think it was just the largest party in in, in uh, systems of government where um, one party doesn't have a majority. It's, it's often the case that the second largest party forms the government if, if, if they are closer to the other parties, because, of course, that also reflects the will of the electorate. Governments are just about to be formed in Spain and Poland, both of them, led by the, uh, the second or the third largest party because they can form a coalition. But in the case um, of 2010, Nick Clegg wanted to go in with the Conservatives because uh, he's a right-of-centre politician, not, not, oh, not a left-of-centre politician. Andrew, so. the party, whatever Nick was, the party was definitely not in that place. And there's many in the party, including myself, who would have much preferred to align with Labour. However, you've forgotten to say that the numbers were not great, were they? If, you, if your party and my party had joined, we would have all had to be there every day and had every other party voting with us as well. Um, and also, my, my, the, my other intelligence at the time was that Gordon Brown wanted to quit. He didn't want to carry on. Your response, well, that, Andrew? Well, he, 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 he did do the negotiations. He was absolutely determined to stay. But, of course, there was also a third course, which is what I thought would happen at the time. I didn't think that uh, Nick Clegg would actually go in with the Conservatives the, uh, formally into a coalition, which was to allow the Conservatives to take office as a minority, and then that would have led to an earlier, early second election, probably with a new Labour leader. Now, if you read, you know, this is the what ifs, it's hard to think that this could have led to a worse outcome for the country than actually happened, because it would have, um, while the Conservatives were in a minority, they wouldn't have been able to proceed with austerity, with the tripling of tuition fees, and so on. There would have been an early election. It's very hard to think that the Lib Dems could have done worse in that election than they actually did in 2015 when they were completely wiped out. And Labour would have been stronger with a new leader. So I don't think it's at all clear that a a minority Conservative government wouldn't have led in due course to a Labour government or a a Lib Lab coalition. Do you regret it, Lynn? No, I don't regret it. Listen, I believe in coalition government. I believe in proportional representation. And I believe that the Liberal Democrats not only did 
some very good things in government, although nobody ever really wants to discuss that. I mean, I was responsible uh, for the change in the same-sex marriage law, but there's a whole list of things I can tell you that we did achieve and a whole list of things that I could tell you that we stopped, in including for a while Brexit. <laughs> so, so, you know, I believe in coalitions and sometimes coalitions are not with people who are like you. They are with the, pers- the, the, the group who has the most power in the land. There were difficult things. I mean, there were things I hated voted, voting for, but that is the nature of coalition. And I think our country is not used to coalitions. I wish it was. I wish we had a high bar for a proportional representation, um, so that we could have a different kind of politics. Because what you get now is a seesaw between basically conservative and labor back to conservative. Everything changes until the next government fails and begins to fail. Then it swaps around. There's no long term planning. There's no, and also the way we conduct ourselves in terms of you, you get votes by hating someone. You know, you have to have a victim, a culture war, a, a, a target for hatred, and that gets you votes. And that kind of negativity is much less if you have proportional representation. And I think our country is like a football match now. You're with us or against us. It's a disaster. Andrew, it was when we were there. Sorry, go on, well, Andrew. One, one of the great disasters, of course, though, is that, uh, is that Lynn and her colleagues didn't get a change in the electoral system. Yeah, so the, the big thing, the big, the big thing that they they set out to uh, do, they they didn't get, and indeed we're further away from it now than probably at any time because we're heading now towards um, a majority Labour government. So that was well, they could they could another, bring it in because it's all it was Labour Party policy. They can bring it in, can't they? Yeah, but it, it isn't Labour Party policy now. Well, so it it's not it won't, it won't happen now. It was voted for on the so, conference floor, wasn't it? Yeah, it's not it's, not. it's not. It's not. It's not going to be part of the Labour manifesto. So that was not. That was another thing which the Lib Dems could have negotiated with Labour in 2010. But you could actually do it. You could actually do it and change this country forever. Yeah, but of course, the the point, Lynn, you're making is that there's a total lack of awareness of political realities. The the whole point of 2010 was that the Lib Dems held the balance. So it could actually force changes. Well, we forced as much as we could, Andrew. We were. Lynn, here's a question for you. Yes, here's my question. Well, here's a a question for you, given what Andrew's just said. I think Andrew raised an interesting point. You had all the leverage in that situation. Do you think, in hindsight, you made a mistake agreeing to. David Cameron's, as he put it, big, bold and comprehensive offer to the Liberal Democrats for seats around the cabinet table for ministerial jobs. And as Andrew is saying, given that you had the balance, do you think you might have leveraged more out of them if you supported a Tory government, uh, a minority Tory government through confidence and supply, bartered issue by issue? No, I don't think we would have got more out of them. But I think we could, you know, in hindsight, have got more out of the original negotiation. I don't think we were quite aware of the power we actually leveraged because David Cameron so desperately wanted to be Prime Minister. And I think perhaps we could have forced more. But don't forget, we were still so much less than them in terms, they still had a lot of um, heft in terms of their numbers compared to the Liberal Democrats. I think there were sort of 20 of us and 80 of them in government. So, yes, we wish we would done more. We wish we fought harder on everything. I'm not sure we'd ever do it again because we got a right slap for it. But I think we achieved an awful lot. And things like the pupil premium, which is money going into disadvantaged schools. Everyone talks about the raising of tax thresholds now. That was Liberal Democrats who introduced that in the coalition. And as I say, same-sex marriage. And there was a hell of a lot of things that we stopped the Conservatives doing. I've got a very long list, but I'm sure you want to bring Andrew in. <laughs> Final word from you, Andrew. If that coalition never happens, 
is progressive politics in this country, as you would say, in a, in a better in a better and stronger place? I mean, I know you'll know this story much much better than I do. That there are lots of people on your wing, of the Labour Party, who think the great tragedy of British progressivism was that the Liberal Party and the Labour Party were ever, you know, split in twain in the first uh, half of the uh, of the twentieth century. Do you think had that coalition not happened, might have? Might that have, uh, not to get too deep into the technicalities, but might we be in a situation now where the Labour and well, Liberal I, Democrats are stronger together? I, t- I told Nick Clegg at the time that he was making a historic error because what he would do was pave the way for a majority Conservative government. I, I always thought that that would be the case because um, uh, what he is, would have done was establish the Conservatives as a governing party, a secure governing party again, and the electorate doesn't want to change its governing party too frequently. So when Lynn says that she saved us from Brexit, well, Brexit happened. When she says the pupil premium and things of that kind, well, austerity, austerity happened. Real-term school funding is much lower now than it was um, in 2010, if you take account of inflation. So it was, a, it was a tragic error. And it's hard to think if you rerun it with either a minority Conservative government or a Labour-Lib coalition, which probably would have led to an earlier second election. It's hard to think that it could have been worse. Well, well we got Brexit, we got austerity, what could have been worse? So I think the Lib Dems made a historic error. And um, that's part of the reason why I don't think we'll see a coalition again for a long time. A historic error. Well, there you go. That's the judgment of Lord Adonis, Andrew Adonis, the Labour peer, uh, former Liberal Democrat, of course, former SDP man, and Lynn Featherstone, who was in that government and in the negotiating rooms, as was Andrew Adonis on the Labour side. Thank you very much for joining us both to Ask What If. Again, much like our game of Guess Who, the last one of these features for a while. Well, that's all we got time for today and indeed all we've got time for from me. It's been great having your company as ever. Thanks for all the lovely messages and indeed the abuse. I'll be back soon. Matt will be back tomorrow. In the meantime, remember to like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcasts from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.